With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hey, people. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. It's your Cleveland.com coverage team, Doug Maurice with Bill Landis, and on the phone, Ari Wasserman. We are going to hit some of the NFL uh, guys leaving. A um, couple other things, a couple questions from you guys. We appreciate you listening to Buckeye Talk. Uh, we've had some record-breaking Buckeye Talk podcasts in the last couple, so um, our readership, not our readership, well, our readership is good too, but our listenership yeah. continues to go up and up on the podcast. So thank you for that. You can always find our stories and videos and everything else at cleveland.com slash OSU. Uh, go ahead and bookmark that on your computer or your phone or just in your brain. Just lock that in right now. Cleveland.com slash OSU. Boom. Nailed it. Okay. Um, as we're recording this, there are a couple decisions uh, still to be made by the Ohio State NFL guys, but five guys are leaving, and I want to ask both you guys. Um, the big one's Curtis Samuel. Uh, there were some writers we know. I remember someone saying after the Fiesta Bowl, people getting a vibe that maybe Curtis Samuel would stay. Uh, Bill, you take this first, then we'll go to Ari. Were you surprised at all that Curtis Samuel left? Um, no, not really. I mean, he had a monster season, and unless he thought like a thousand rushing and a thousand receiving was out there, he had over seven hundred in both. I think this was the best season he was going to have at Ohio State, and certainly he could have duplicated it next year, maybe. But I don't know if that would have increased his draft stock anymore. And I saw some stuff that said he's a top fifty draft prospect. Um, Bleacher Reports, Matt Miller, I think, had him that high. If that's where he is, I, I don't think much can change in that regard. So, uh, not surprised. I think there were people who thought he was on the fence a little bit. But, um, as is the case with all these guys, you know, there's something to be said for for striking while the iron's hot a little bit. And certainly Samuel's hot right now. So, what do you think, Ari? I agree with Bill. Um, truthfully speaking, a lot of the you know, draft people, I didn't really see a lot of stuff about Samuel during the year. I don't know about you, Bill. I saw a lot more about Lattimore and Hooker and guys like that than I did about Samuel. But when you talk about production in a season and you talk about what might be his biggest efficiency for being an NFL prospect, which is size, both those things aren't going to change. So he has a national championship at Ohio State. He helped them get to the playoff. I really didn't think he was going to come back because I just thought that everything that he could do at Ohio State's been done. And, uh, you know, there was nothing he could do to make him a different prospect. And if he's a top 50 pick, I think it was a good decision. All right, I have three Curtis Samuel questions I want to run through with you guys. First one is, if the offense is going to change, the offensive staff is changing, the offense should be better. Now, the one guy that it almost couldn't be better for is Curtis Samuel because he was the offense 
this year. But is there any idea in your head that if Kevin Wilson ends up coming here, if they get the passing game back together a little bit or find just get more of a flow to the offense, could he have been even better, though? Like, is there anything in your head, if you were an offensive player for Ohio State, would you have anything in your, in your head of, you know, that wasn't great this year. If we're making changes, I think it can be better. You guys said he had a great year, but couldn't he, couldn't he have even a bigger year if he'd come back? Yeah, I mean, if they were going to give, I think he actually might have had a worse year, and not worse in terms of it being a, a worse player, but I don't think Ohio State wants its offense to be so reliable on just one guy as it was. He caught 74 passes and I think he had 90-something rushes. Uh, we, I think, have been on the record as saying he should get more than that, but I don't think the offense is designed that way. So if he came back and the offense was clicking, I think he'd actually end up getting fewer touches than he got this year. Um so no, I, I don't think he would have been better. I think he would, might have his numbers might have suffered just because the offense might be better next year. Uh, I agree. For as much as that we banged the drum about get Samuel the ball more, get Samuel the ball more. I also think that was kind of predicated on him being one of their only real options, right? Yeah. So if they came back and they have a few more experienced players and they have a more diversified offense that throws the ball downfield, I do agree with you, Bill. I think that you know seven hundred and seven hundred. It's really hard to envision better than that. Because what you know the stat, what's a thousand a thousand? Has it ever been done before? It's never been done before, no. Not, so not to expect that it would be much better than seven hundred and seven hundred might not make much sense. And at the same time, I don't know if eight hundred and eight hundred or nine hundred and nine hundred dramatically changes his draft stock. So I think that uh, he might have had statistically a worse season next year than he did this year, just simply because he was kind of their bailout option. All right, I added another question. I had four questions to ask about Curtis Samuel. That was one. Here's a second one. I think Curtis Samuel helped Urban Meyer rediscover the H back this year. Urban Meyer said a lot this season that he was the best H that Urban Meyer has had since Percy Harvin. It felt like, I mean, you can't get the ball to everybody. And when Urban Meyer came to Ohio State, there were all the questions about having a thousand yard running back, having a thousand yard running back. He hadn't done that at Florida. Then he got here, and he has Carlos Hyde, Ezekiel Elliott for two years, and now Mike Weber. So now he does it all the time. But I felt like that's a very versatile, interesting, creative component of the Urban Meyer offense at its best. And I felt like it had got, they'd gotten away from it a little bit. And I still even think – we called Curtis Samuel an H-back. He – I just they didn't run enough jet sweeps. I, to me, the H back is the jet sweep. Otherwise, you're just a slot receiver who sometimes is a tailback. You know, like yeah. everybody has a slot receiver, but it's that run threat from the slot that I think is so interesting. Anyway, do you think Curtis Samuel's emergence this year and how good he was will that pay dividends for the H back being a bigger part of this offense going forward with other guys? Uh, I don't know. It's a good question because I don't know. I don't know who on the roster possesses that skill, the, the combination of skill sets. And I know, Doug, you wrote a little bit about some possible replacements, and I wrote about Demario McCall on Tuesday morning. I think they have guys who are really good runners. I think they have guys who are really good slot receivers. I don't know if there's one that has the combination of skill sets the way that Curtis Samuel had. I think he was pretty unique in that regard. Um, so I, if, if it comes to next year, 2017 and beyond, and we sort of see – the H-back kind of less featured like it was in the first four years Urban Meyer was in Columbus. I don't think I'd be surprised by that. 
I think Curtis Samuel was a pretty unique talent. I don't know, unless, Ari, you think there's like a recruit coming in who has that skill set. I don't know if there's a guy on the roster who, who can run and play receiver the way Samuel did. I think the way it works with him is just whoever's the best athlete or the best playmaker on the team becomes the offense. And I don't know if it's more so of rediscovering or, or realizing how important something is as much as it is who's the best player on our team. And I think that this year it happened to be Curtis Samuel and the two previous years it happened to be Ezekiel Elliott. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's a major part of his offense. There's no question about it. But I think a guy like Demario McCall, based on the little that we've seen and what they've been saying about him, poses the skill set to be an efficient H-back. But if he's not the best offensive weapon on the team, I don't think it's going to be like last year again until that's the case, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, third question. You guys sort of delved into it. Who takes over there next year? I said, I did a thoughts post about the draft, and I said, as strange as this sounds, like Curtis Samuel was the whole offense this year, but I also think he's replaceable because I do think they have some guys with the skill set. So... Can they do that? Like, is this going to blow a hole in the offense that he's gone? Or whether it's Demario McCall, whether it's KJ Hill, whether it's somebody else, whether it's, and maybe by the time we post this, this will be a bigger story. And I have something on this that I'm going to write at some point. Eric Glover Williams, who I was in love with this year as a special teamer, he and I talked about playing offense at the Fiesta Bowl, and he tweeted something. Right before we started this podcast on Tuesday about joining Zone 6. We don't know what that means. I would love to see Eric Glover-Williams as an H-back. That might be a fantasy. But who is going to play that role next year? And how close of a can they be to Curtis Samuel? I think mimicking Samuel's tough. Um, and I think it's going to be H-back by committee a little bit. Um, I asked KJ Hill, and I forget what week it was. It was like midway point of the season when he looked like he was coming on a little bit. It was before I think he got got injured and missed a game or two. Um, I asked him like, "Are you an H back or are you a slot receiver?" He said, "I'm an H back," and I said, "Well, can you run inside?" And he said, "Yeah." So I think that, and if you watch his, his high school highlight tape too, he played some running back and looked like a pretty physical runner. I think maybe more so than anyone, he possesses the traits. Closest to Samuel, more so than McCall, and Eric Lover Williams is fascinating because he like played Wildcat quarterback in high school, um, so maybe he can do it too. But I would think it's H back by committee with uh, KJ Hill featured maybe a little more heavily than the other guys. Ari is is Dobbins in that mix potentially, or do you think it's is that too much to ask of a freshman? Do you think it's going to be Hill and Hill and McCall next year? Well, I think it's interesting because if you look at Ohio State's depth chart. Running back is going to be kind of, if they move McCall over to H, then they're going to be kind of light at running back. And um, Dobbins comes in as an all-purpose back, which I think means that he is very good out of the backfield, catching passes out of the backfield, being an inside runner, and you know getting downfield a little bit. So I think in theory, Dobbins makes sense at the H position, um, or could at least play the H position the way Ohio State wants him to be played. Uh, but I think that he is best served from the beginning as a running back just based on the fact that they've got Weber, Antonio Williams, and then that's it at, at, at that position. And you want to at least be three deep. Um, what's funny is I thought Eric Lover Williams was recruited as an offensive player because then he got moved to defense, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Because I thought that's that that was like a whole I think thing. He was I an thought athlete. he was an yeah. H-back. I mean, he's little, but I think he was like an athlete. 
right? I mean, I don't know. But, I mean, that happens all the time. Again, we've gone over this. happens with Ted Ginn Jr. and Anthony Gonzalez and a lot of these guys that are fast and play both ways. Uh, Marshawn Lattimore, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. guys, could, you don't know which way they're going to go. But, yeah, it did It did seem he was more a little more of an offensive recruit than a defensive recruit. I, I, that sounds right to me. Yeah. But I would not be surprised, and I don't want to, like, hype up McCall too much, but I would not be surprised if McCall was the primary player at that position that year, next year. More so than Hill. He strikes me as more yeah. natural at that position. I think I saw some stuff from K.J. Hill that makes me think he could be a good X receiver, more so than an H. I think that McCall is blazing fast. Ohio State fell in love with his speed during the recruiting process. He's shown that he's able to run through the tackles because he was a backup running back this year who actually played running back in games. And then if he can catch the ball downfield, I think that the combination of being able to be as fast as he is and run inside makes him really the ideal candidate to take over there. I mean, I think the thing that makes those guys best, and again, I, I get infatuated with the jet sweep, but... It's all about keeping the same personnel on the field and using them in different ways. That's why you see Mike Weber, the running back, and Marcus Bott, tight end, split out wide sometimes when they go five wide. They don't want the defense to be able to adjust their personnel based on the Ohio State personnel. So when you have a guy like Curtis Samuel, and I think McCall fits this, that you can line him up in the slot and then motion him into the backfield or vice versa. Start him in the backfield next to Mike Weber. Okay, he's a threat to get handed the ball, and Weber is the lead blocker. Oh no, now he's motioning out to the slot, and he's a legitimate threat as a receiver who can run a route and catch a pass. That that puts a lot of pressure on the defense, and so that's what really makes this offense go, I think, in a lot of ways, when you have a guy like that who is as dangerous running the ball as a tailback and as dangerous catching the ball as a receiver. And Curtis Samuel really brought that in a way that, like, Braxton Miller wasn't that. He's a quarterback who moved to receiver and and could be dangerous there, but they weren't handing the ball to Braxton Miller like a tailback when he was playing H, you know? So, I mean, that was really something that Curtis Samuel really, I think, made it tough on defenses. uh, One thing about Demario McCall, because I talked to him when we were in in, uh, Arizona, he said that he doesn't really want to be an H-back in the sense that he considers himself more of a true tailback but sees a better opportunity to get more snaps on offense at H-back, and, which I think is fair, and I think a lot of guys think that when they're in that position. Um, but that, to me, maybe shed a little bit of light on the fact that he might not be quite as advanced as he needs to be in terms of being a receiver to be as dynamic in the slot as Curtis Samuel was. Curtis Samuel became a really, really good receiver. And in a season when guys really struggled to get open, I thought Samuel did a really nice job of not only getting open down the field, but also like finding spots in the zone to give JT Barrett somebody to throw to. Um, so I think that that might be the thing they miss most when they list Samuel, because I think they have guys who can run the ball. I don't know if they have guys who were as advanced as Samuel was as a, as a pass catcher. All right, here's my last question. And I think this, this might be the most interesting one, although it doesn't affect Ohio State. What is Curtis Samuel in the NFL? Brian Westbrook. <laughs> That's the Philly guy. <laughs> and I like Brian Westbrook a lot too. I, I I saw someone, and I don't know who it was, just a thing flashing across the bottom of the screen somewhere that Curtis Samuel was like the number five receiver on somebody's board. I don't think he's a receiver. Like Braxton Miller was then an ace back at Ohio State and then was a receiver in the NFL. I don't think Curtis Samuel's a receiver in the NFL. I think he's a third down running back who can catch passes. 
I think he's a half of a one-two tailback punch. I don't think he's a. I don't think he's whatever Julian Edelman or a or a slot guy that you just line up in the slot yeah. and never hand him the ball. I, I think he's. I think he's a tailback, and I think he's not an every down twenty carry tailback. But I think he's a complimentary tailback who can be a devastating third down guy, running or catching. And I, and I don't think he's a receiver. What do you guys think? I think I agree with that. I think of like, again, this is the Philadelphia me talking, but I think of like how a coach like Andy Reid uses running backs. And I don't know if he's ever had like, well, he's had like workhorse guys, but he likes to have running backs who basically are the team's leading receiver in addition to being a running back, but they're not an every down, get the ball 40 times a game, hand it off running back. Um, I think as a pass catcher out of the backfield, he can like be devastating in the NFL. Um, and I think it's nice that he has the skills to line up in the slot, but I agree with you that he's not an every-down receiver. I think he's too valuable of a runner to, to take him out of that role completely. I, I've been seeing a lot of, like, Philly needs a Curtis Samuel in my timeline. I don't know if I just follow a lot of people from Ephrata or what, but I just... <laughs> I, um, I, I just... <laughs> He does strike me as like, is he like Darren Sproles, but just not as jukey? And but bigger, yeah. Bigger, he, like a West. He's like a West Coast offense running back. Like that's like they right, work, they right. run about, yeah. They like want to pass that's what you back. think when you think of like all-purpose running back. Because I do think he's big enough and fast enough and strong enough to take an inside handoff in the NFL. But I do think that like he could be like a a guy who gets like t- ten touches a game in the NFL. Right? Isn't that the right number? Yeah, I would yeah. Think so yeah, yeah, I think so. But and, again, does, and maybe get involved in the return game a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So yeah. I agree with you guys. Although he wasn't super dynamic as a return guy this year. Was he? he didn't, I feel like he didn't have very many chances. But a lot of fair catches and stuff, which yeah. is fine. I think they put him back there mostly because they trusted him to like catch, catch the, the ball, ball and yeah. not and make good decisions on whether to let it bounce or catch it or that kind of thing. Um, all right, another decision that I wanted to talk about in how it affects the player and – how it affects Ohio State is Noah Brown. I think it's the most surprising uh, decision. It's obviously the most surprising decision. Um, I had said this. We, we did on senior day, we went through 11 underclassmen and guessed and asked the readers um, for a final take on, will these guys stay or go? We did 11. I mean, we did guys like, you know, because they, they had a lot of guys in the mix. But we did yeah. Billy Price and, and Jalen Holmes and Sam Hubbard and a lot of guys who were staying. We did Tyquan Lewis. And we didn't include Noah Brown in that because that was not even in our heads. And I don't I don't look back on that and think, oh, my gosh, how did we leave out Noah Brown? No. Um, he's a redshirt sophomore. He missed all of 2015 with the broken leg, played very sparingly in 2014, um, and then – I think had 42 catches this year. Something like that. I don't know off the top of my head. So let's first of all deal with it for Ohio State. How big of a loss is this for Ohio State? We know the receivers weren't great this year. The passing game wasn't great. He was like their go-to guy, and the go-to guy from an offense that couldn't throw it is gone. So what does that mean? Um, I think there are fans who are probably excited about the idea that this creates an opening for guys like Austin Mack and Ben Victor and Trayvon Grimes if, he, if he's healthy enough to play. Um, and I get that because those guys seem like they they could be pretty dynamic receivers and are maybe even more advanced at their, their stage in their career than Noah Brown is now. I do think there's something to be said for experience. And I think if you're going to be relying on 
true sophomores who haven't played much and a true freshman and maybe some other people who haven't played all that much at the receiver position, there's going to be some growing pains there. Noah Brown, uh, even though he lost his season to injury in 2015, it's a guy who was like on the field in the Sugar Bowl against Alabama. He played a decent amount of football. He's been around a while. I think he was viewed as a little bit of a leader on the team. So I think they lo- miss him most in that capacity. But as it can, as can be said with all of Ohio State's receivers this year, um, he wasn't quite productive enough in my mind. So I don't know if it's going to be a huge loss in terms of production for Ohio State's passing game. Let me throw this out before we get Ari's take. 32 catches, 402 yards receiving, seven touchdowns. Four of the seven touchdowns were obviously in the one game against Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Anytime you can get have a game – what that you do what Noah Brown did against Oklahoma. I don't care how bad that cornerback was. To catch the passes that he did and to take over a game like that, it makes you think, what if? And why did he not have more than 32 receptions this year? Was it him? Was he not getting open? Was it the deficiency of the offense? Was it the protection? Was it JT? What was it? Because he was certainly a capable player, and coaches raved about him all the time. Yeah, but let, let me interrupt you here for a second. Let me interrupt you. They did rave. Everybody raved about him. All offseason, all preseason. Rave, 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 rave. Were the catches against Oklahoma that great? Weren't they? Weren't they like, I mean, I mean they, they were, but it, they, the, the catches weren't necessarily super crisp routes getting open. Like, right. It was sort of like, hey, you're a big athlete. Go get a ball. Which is like what it wasn't Mike, like what Mike Williams did last night where he was jumping, you know, I feel like it's possible. I mean, the numbers are the numbers. Four touchdowns is a huge game against a great opponent, so you get all the credit in the world for that. But I wonder if we all just like overrated him based on that because it was sort of like four 50-50 throws that they didn't really do the rest of the year. It was a terrible corner. The thing behind the back is a great catch, but kind of it's fluky. It's a little bit of luck. It's not like he took that defense apart and they couldn't cover him. He made four random catches in the end zone because they used him as a red zone target. And then we wondered all year why he wasn't a bigger part of the offense when he really was never that big a part of the offense. I don't know. I just, I, I'm like looking back and thinking, did we, were we, were we wrong the whole time? Were we waiting on something that actually was never there? I think that that's a possibility, but I also think it's a possibility that he was really good and they just didn't have the capacity to get him the ball for whatever reason. And I think that, when we're talking about Ohio State specifically, that it is a loss to lose him off your roster. It's an unexpected loss, and yes, it frees up a scholarship, and you know you're going to get another recruit in. But just to have that guy in your roster next year just gives you another tool. And I think that whenever you have a season the way Ohio State did offensively, fans are excited to turn the page. Um, you know, it's not stagnant. New faces, new people, new coaches. Let's go, type of a mentality. Um, so I get the fact that people are excited to see what Ben Victor and Austin Matt can do, especially with what everybody had been saying about them this past year after they were highly recruited prospects two years ago. But I do think that it is a loss, and you'd be silly to say otherwise that he's not going to be returning to give them at least another option with some experience in that room next year. Because you know Noah Brown was Austin Mack and Ben Victor once upon a time. He was like a big recruit coming in who was – had high expectations and people were excited about. So, um, I mean, it is going to be remarkable. Paris Campbell is the leading receiver coming back in that receiver room. I think he had 13 catches this year. I mean, it is 
it's unbelievable what they're going to try to have to put together a passing game. Completely revamping it. Paris Campbell, 13 catches this year for 121 yards. Um, Terry McLaurin, 11 catches for 114 yards. KJ Hill, Hill, as an H-back, actually 18 catches, 262 yards. Um, You know, I mean, Noah Brown and, and Curtis Samuel each had seven receiving touchdowns. Dontre Wilson had five. Nobody else in the team had more than two. So, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, man. I mean, like, there's there's reason to be intrigued by the young receivers they have there, but um, it's going to be interesting. It's going it's, to yeah. it's, – it's really – I mean, the thing that, that bothers me sort of – doesn't bother me. Urban Meyer said after Ohio State beat Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl to end the 2015 season – and they did it by running it down their throats, just like they had run it against Michigan in winning that game. He said, the first time we talked to him a couple days after that, we're going to throw the ball next year. We're going to be a passing team. And then this season happened, and they weren't anything close to a passing team. So I know the staff changes are coming with the offense, and I know I've been sort of critical of people who are too critical of JT. But on the other hand, it's like, well, you said it before. You can't just say something and make it happen. You have to ha- actually do it. And I don't know if they're going to do it. I think they might be better positioned to do it than they were not so much in, in 2015. I don't know why. I mean, because they had good receivers, I thought, in 2015 with Michael Thomas and Jalen Marshall. They had two NFL receivers, three if you include Braxton Miller. And I know those guys weren't great, but that's a lot of talent. Um this past season, I just don't think that, and not to rehash something that I've we've talked about a lot, but they just didn't have like pure receivers playing, guys who could work themselves open to the point where JT Barrett was comfortable enough to throw them the ball. And some of that's on JT for not wanting to take risks, but some of that's on them too for not getting open. Other than Curtis Samuel, Curtis Samuel was open a lot. The other guys weren't. JT's not going to force passes. Um, I think if they have guys who Austin Mack is the example who's been who's had private wide receiver coaching. Sorry, I just broke your pen, Doug. Um, who's had private wide receiver coaching since he was a freshman in high school and understands route concepts and understands body position and all this other stuff that makes you a, an excellent wide receiver. If there's more of those guys in the mix and less guys who are quote-unquote projects, I think that puts Ohio State in a better position to be a passing team next year. And if they're not, then stop saying it because you're just lying. Okay. I want to go big picture now with this NFL stuff. Last season – They had basically 10 guys who had NFL decisions to make, and nine of the 10 went pro. The only one who didn't was Pat Elfline. Um, This year, as we're recording this, five guys have turned pro. Malik Hooker, Garyon Conley, um, Curtis Samuel, Noah Brown, and Raekwon McMillan. Um, Noah Brown, really the only surprise there. We're waiting on a couple more by the time you listen to this. Uh, Marshawn Lattimore and Marcus Ball may have made their decisions. I think, um, just a quick, I think Marcus Ball like might have actually made his decision and just not told anybody about it. He was like tweeting about being in class the other day. Oh, that he's back? He's in school, and like you can still go to the draft and stop going to class, but he seems like he is currently in school. He just hasn't made an official Twitter announcement one way or the other that he's coming back, but it seems to me that he's coming back. Well, that, that was a guy who... I think a lot of fans at first blush would look at that guy and say, well, why? I don't even know why he's making a decision. But that was a guy whose name you sort of heard a lot this year as a sort of behind the scenes of people just wondering 
that he might go. Yeah. Um, okay, so whether it's five or six or seven, a year after they had nine leave for the NFL early, is there any part of this that is a problem for Ohio State? And, and I'm just going to leave it as that. Define problem however you want to. Is it an issue? Is it a problem? Is it anything that's a negative when you had nine leave last year, five, six, or seven this year? You, you can assume it's not going to stop. It's going to keep being this way. You know, in years past, five, six, seven years ago at Ohio State, it was more like two or three maybe a year. It wasn't this many. Is this a problem? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know, Ari, if you, Ari, if you have an opinion. I think it's kind of all positive for Ohio State. I don't know if you think there's any negatives in it. Well, I think Urban Meyer said himself that this is what they want. Um, I think that this is – they want to have players who are good enough to go to the pros, which is obvious. The only thing that you have to do in this scenario, and the reason why you, you watched Alabama and Clemson on Tuesday, specifically Alabama, is, is that even though it's happening there, they're able to replenish. And <clears> – <throat> Ohio State's done that. It's only okay and only survivable if you are bringing in players who are able to play and, and do that right away. So the interesting thing to me so far, huge amount of early departures to the NFL was last year. And what happened? They re, they put people in and those guys now are going to the NFL. And, you know, we talk a lot about recruiting rankings and things like that, but is that a sustainable thing? I think it is if you continually bring in a top four class, and Ohio State's doing that. Now, I think that it's probably pretty tough to win consistently and get to the playoff every single year when you have so much roster turnover. But again, so much of this game is about was about having NFL talent. And if Ohio State wants to be a national championship team, they probably want and need there to be at least five or seven underclassmen who are NFL caliber players, because if they're not, then they're probably not good enough to go to the playoff. So it's kind of a double-edged sword in my mind. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the, the thing that, that fans are going to have to get used to is just not knowing these guys as well. Um, that you're going to see a guy, you're going to see a guy who, like Bill wrote a good story about sort of the Malik Hooker phenomenon of, of being a one-year starter who in that one year is a unanimous first-team All-American and a surefire first-round draft pick. That is not typical even at the best programs in the country, for a one-year starter um, to do that kind of thing. But if Ohio State's going to be great, they're going to need some of those guys. Again, Marshawn Lattimore is almost at the same level. Wasn't first-team All-American, but was a first-year starter who, if he goes, is looking like a first-round draft pick. So that's, I think, what's going to be hard for fans to maybe get used to, the idea of, hey, I remember this guy from recruiting. He was a big deal. Okay, he kind of vanished for a year or two because he was either redshirting or playing special teams. Okay, here's his year to start. He's awesome. He's gone. Yeah. And that's just sort of like a new part of the reality, I guess. That happened. And the plan is going to be for Jordan Fuller to do it now. And guys like that. Yeah. You know, I don't know. He's actually a true freshman this year who's redshirting, but you get the example. One thing I – and I guess it's like to, far, to further hammer home this point that ex- exists for programs like Ohio State and Alabama, Deshaun Hand, remember that name, Ari? Yeah, of course. I, there was a good story about Deshaun Hand. Um, I think Adam Kramer of Bleacher Report wrote it last week or the week before. 
Deshaun Hand has been a career backup. He was the number one player in the country in the recruiting class that like included Leonard Fournette. And he's been a career backup, and he didn't start this year because Jonathan Allen came back for a senior season. And Jonathan Allen was ready to play in the NFL. He just chose to come back, and that's his prerogative, and he didn't make the wrong decision. But this is the kind of impact you have when guys don't go, is that a guy like Deshaun Hand, who like might be a top-five defensive tackle in the country and no one knows about it, is playing behind Jonathan Allen because that guy decided to come back for a year. And what's interesting to me more so, it's funny that you bring up that comparison uh, or that example because I feel like Ohio State is recruiting at the highest possible level except a time. And Alabama is recruiting at the highest level possible. Ohio State's been a full step behind them. And Alabama, I think, has been familiar with this type of NFL turnover every year because they've been the best program that have the best players. The one thing I'll be interested to see is, A, if Ohio State can put together recruiting classes, much like the one they're doing right now in 2017, uh, in multiple years, how that kind of helps, you know, obviously replenish the, cu- the cupboard when people leave early, but also the, you know, ability to, you know, have that many talented players on the roster who are backups for longer than maybe one year because Malik Hooker might not be playing in Alabama right now still. Yeah, And, you know, it's like, it's funny, but, you know, I think Ohio State was recruiting really well with Jim Trussell. Then they are recruiting top three with Urban. But now if they're recruiting number one, I think it kind of changes that dynamic of the entire roster makeup from both standpoints. Is that, I think, Doug, you might have asked this, maybe it was in the last podcast, and I think I changed my answer. You asked, like, Tyquan Lewis is coming back, what effect does that have on Ohio State? And if the effect is Nick Bosa doesn't play as much? That's probably a negative for Ohio State, right? Not to say that Tyquan Lewis is bad and having him is bad, but Nick Bosa is not going to be a starter until he's a junior, and then he's going to be gone. And you didn't maximize your time with Nick Bosa. With Nick Bosa. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't. I, I mean, I, like the Deshaun Hand comparison is, yeah. is a good thing. Then I mean, Deshaun Hand's the guy that almost went to Michigan, right? That like would have saved Brady Hoke's job practically. He was Rashawn Gary before Rashawn Gary. Yeah, and. I mean, and Michigan was great this year. If Deshaun Hamm was at Michigan, he might have been the Big Ten defensive lineman of the year or yeah. something. And at Alabama, he didn't play. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't know. What does it mean when your good young players can't get on the field? Is that good or bad? I don't, I well, don't it's know. Like you're like, what, do you, the one thing I don't understand, and this is interesting, Bill, when you said, is it bad for Ohio State that they're not maximizing their Nick Bosa time? The question is, is is Taekwon returning going to give Ohio State a better player at that position than they would have if he would have gone? Because when you're talking about for the team, the only thing you want is to have the best version of that position player at that position that season. So I don't think Ohio State would be upset if Nick Bosa didn't play that much next year because Taekwon Lewis was better than once in the NFL the following year after being like his brother. I think what the goal for Ohio State should always be to have the best possible players starting at every position every year, regardless of their age. All right, let's hit some questions. We always take your questions on Twitter, at BillLandis25, at Ari Wasserman, at Doug Maurice. Uh, we appreciate your input. And uh, when you guys hold us accountable for what we say, even if we don't want to be held accountable. Um, I have a good one. I like this one. Uh, coming off the national championship game from at Zach SF. DJ Zach Moore, who we have questioned, is he really a DJ? He is. Yeah. He oh, is. Did, did you see his response? No, but I, he was, right? Yes, he is. He confirmed it on Twitter. He is an actual DJ. Um, so, DJ, he's going to mix us up an intro song at some point. There you go. After watching the title game, where is it most evident Ohio State must improve to win a title in 2017? I think that's a very interesting question because 
those were two really good teams on yeah. the field last night. And the thing I found most interesting is that there was one team with a glaring weakness, and that glaring weakness was the same glaring weakness that Ohio State had this year. Alabama couldn't throw, and Ohio State couldn't throw. So I think my answer would be get Deshaun Watson. Or <laughs> if you don't get Deshaun Watson, you got to be able to throw. Deshaun Watson made a lot – Early in the game, he wasn't making gigantic plays. He was making a lot of seven- and eight-yard throws on quick slants and stuff over the middle to guys who really weren't that open. But he was not afraid to make a throw. If you are going to win at the elite level, you can't be afraid to throw. Guys are not going to be wide open. You're going to play great defenses. And if you try to only run it, if Ohio State would have gotten to Alabama and tried to only, only run it, no shot. They would have had if they had somehow beaten Clemson. Ohio State would have had to throw it, and so that's what I'm taking away. JT Barrett and this offense has to throw it, and they have to throw it when guys aren't wide open. Yeah, I it's like we talked about before the playoffs started, and we weren't the only one. I don't even know if we agreed with it, but we certainly talked about the point that people thought Ohio State was the team best positioned to challenge Alabama. Deshaun Watson had to throw for 400 yards in that game, and they won on a last second touchdown. Ohio State probably would have gotten shut out against Alabama, too. They couldn't throw the ball anywhere near the way Clemson throws the ball. Um, and that certainly was hammered home against Clemson and I think was like a final exclamation point on how inept this team was as a passing team when you saw the way Clemson threw it and the way that Clemson had to win a national title. Um, yeah, Ohio State's passing game has to improve drastically. Swassie? Is it weird that you guys just basically nailed everything I was going to say? No, it's kind of obvious. I mean, it's like any question this year that's like, what's wrong with Ohio State? It's like there's not a lot of ways you're going to go with that. Ohio State's got to fix their place-kicking situation. Not what you guys said. Yeah, I also came away away a little less secure, in my opinion, that Cam Johnson's the best punter in America. Wow. And that's because of Deshaun Watson's pooch punt in the fourth quarter of that game. Yeah. It was beautiful. Alabama's best quarterback was a receiver, and Clemson's best punter was their quarterback. Um, the one thing that we do need to get to the bottom of is how J.K. Scott from Alabama didn't make the final three of the um, punting award. What's the punter award? It's the rig. It's because he's not Australian. The rig guy. He's from, yeah, he's from I mean, Colorado. That guy's incredible. Yeah, well, Clemson's punter or Clemson's punter looked like that was his first time ever playing football. I don't know if that was intentional or what. I don't know how they won the game, considering <laughs> that punter kept Clemson completely behind the eight ball in field position but, that entire game. But wasn't that the strategy? Is that is that not their punting away from the return? I don't know to, that their punting strategy yeah, is like you have like a little pooch and get a thirty yard roll. That has to be a strategy. He wasn't even swinging his no, leg. No, it was definitely it was definitely a strategy. It just wasn't working for the longest time. Why wasn't he swinging his leg? Their average starting field position was like a thirty-seven yard line. Uh, it was weird. It was weird. It's it's a strategy I'm not familiar with. I guess it's just keep it. You don't get a return off of it, and then maybe yeah. maybe it rolls and hits somebody in the ankle and you're recovered. I don't know. Um, all right, I have two. I have a rant. By the way, I want to make sure I get to before we're done. <laughs> I already did it on Twitter, but I want our podcast people to hear it. All right, I got a question from John Emerson, who's at JPE0330. Scholarship crunch number. Um, he's asking what the latest scholarship number is. 
and I'm looking at our handy-dandy scholarship chart that if you just Google Ohio State and scholarship chart and Cleveland.com, you will find it. It's beautiful. You made it, right, Landis? Uh, with some help from Rich Exner, who's the man. Thanks, Rich Exner. It's beautiful. Um, we have them at 88, and this is um, – is Lattimore still on here? Lattimore. No, they're all out. Everyone who is declared is out. But Lattimore hasn't declared. Right. So he's in. So yeah. um, so they're getting there, but they're still – I mean, they got a couple more moves to make. And we made a big deal about this uh, early in the season. I think the thing we want to address – they're going to get to the number. They're going to have a couple more transfers. They're going to have a couple more recruits they add to this class. Is this a problem at all the way this was handled – from what we've seen so far, or is this just life in the big city? Some guys are going to have to transfer, or is there anything that is at all distasteful about the idea of we're going to we're going to cram this recruiting class into our roster one way or the other, and we're going to make it happen? Um, I'm I'm pretty okay with the way it's shaking out. I think there are guys who are transferring who have already announced that they're transferring that just simply weren't going to play here. And if you want to go play somewhere else, you can go play somewhere else. Um, I think I'm, I'm pretty okay with how this all kind of shook out. I think there's a difference between transfers and forced out, right? Yeah. I don't think we ever really know for sure who was said you have to go and which ones are strongly suggested and then they agree. But as far as the names that have come up so far as guys who are leaving – they're all people who were in the program for multiple years who had their fair chance to make an impact. And there's nothing that's happened so far in the way that Ohio State's approached this that makes me feel like they're doing anything abundantly wrong. I do think that if there's any ever a point in time where there's a kid who has been in the program for less than four years and really wants to stay and is forced to leave, I think that that's wrong, but I don't know if that's happened. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell. We only see the results, and unless you get someone who wants to talk about it, um, you don't know for sure. And they certainly, I mean, if someone's leaving and they don't really want to leave, they have every right to say so. And then if they don't say so, then so be it. Um, So again, we're not saying this has happened. All we're looking at is numbers and the reality of the numbers. And we've been telling you things are going to have to happen. So just let me ask a theoretical question again. I am not saying that this is happening. I'm sure it has happened in the world of college football before. I'm just asking a theoretical question. If you have a kid who's been on a program for three years, has never been in trouble, his grades are fine, works hard in practice, is not as good of a player as he thought he was going to be or the coaches thought he was going to be, and is not even on the depth chart, is a third teamer, does a school have a right to get in his face and strongly suggest that he leave? No, I don't think that's okay. I mean, you recruited the guy, and if he wants to be there and he's been a good soldier, I think uh, I think you owe it to the kid to to let him stick around because he made the commitment to you, and you should be required to do the same in that in that specific situation. I agree. I, I think that it's funny because throughout the entire recruiting process. I guess everybody says that the kid has the power, the kid has the power, the kid has the power, but the kid never really has all of the power ever because the program can take a scholarship or move on at any point, and I think that that makes them a little bit um, 
susceptible at times during the recruiting process. I think once they get to the program, if they do everything that they said that they would do during the recruiting process and held up their end of the bargain as part of your program, that they should get there a lot of amount of time, regardless of how good they turn out to be. Okay. Um, I agree with that. Another question from the same guy, um, probably aimed at me. Can you expound on why Tim Beck would have caused JT to regress? What did he or didn't he do? What did Urban see in Beck? Um, kind of the Tim Beck writer at Cleveland.com. Yeah. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. Here's what I think. The proof's in the pudding, right? Proof's in the pudding. JT Barrett doesn't throw it as well as it used to. I'm not saying that Tim Beck didn't run the right quarterback drills or that Tim Beck um, changed his throwing motion or anything like that. Coaching at this level, a lot of it is psychology. Urban Meyer would tell you that. He's got a psychology degree. He does the psychology stuff all the time. JT Barrett is a hardworking dude who's had a lot of success. And he didn't look like that on the field. He didn't look like a guy who was who had a lot of success and should have a lot of confidence. So to me, if it looks like JT Barrett is not playing with confidence, then something went haywire. And that's where I'm going to point at the guy who works with him every day in his position room. Something happened that Tim Beck couldn't help JT Barrett feel confident. So I don't I don't know what else to say. I mean, I don't know the specifics. But I, he didn't help him be his best because he's not the best he's ever been. He's not. He's been better before. So if he's not as good as he used to be, then some part of that is coaching. And I don't have to know the ins and outs. I just can see the results. So something happened where the whispers in the ear, the motivational sayings every day, the way they talked about the offense or talked about the throws or whatever, talked about reading defenses, something happened, and JT Barrett did not look as confident as you would think a fourth-year guy with all those starts under his belt would be. So where am I going to look? Yes, part of it's on the guy, on the player, certainly. But I'm going to look at the coach who's with him every day. And that's it. Am I nuts? Am I nuts? No, I, I think that's uh, fair. Because we don't, like you said, we don't know the ins and outs of the, the drill work and mechanical stuff and all that. Um, so I think that's the place you have to go. Second part of the question was, what did River Meyer see in Tim Beck? He saw Texas. The big state of Texas. Stars at night. Lots of good football players. Ari's There's three, nobody else yeah. on planet Earth that you could possibly blame. You can't even rationalize blaming anybody else, which is why I'm so confused at why there's resistance to the acceptance that he was responsible for it. Yeah, I agree. All right. Our man Nathan, G. Nilly, 97. What separates Nick Saban from Urban Meyer as a football coach? Is Urban too loyal, too patient with coaches and players? Ooh, that's a really good question. Because I was thinking about this before the Alabama game. On what planet in a similar situation do you think Urban would have done what Saban did with Kiffin? Because I thought about this, and I don't think ever. I don't think ever. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I thought 
there was room for a coaching change on the offensive side to have been made after last season. After that, that play calling structure clearly did not work and cost them the Michigan State game in 2015. Um, I understand why Urban Meyer didn't do it. He always talks about he wants his assistant coaches to give him two years when they come here before they look for another job. So on some level, I think it would have been, for lack of a better word, hypocritical to get rid of Tim Beck after a year. But it's also big boy school, and if he wanted to do it, I think he could have done it. Um, I think he could have addressed that. Because, again, the issues they had this year are the exact same issues they had last year. So I think you could have done it, and I think maybe somebody else would. But I guess the question is, let's make this a more deeply philosophical question. Would you want the coach of your college football program to act like Nick Saban? I mean, he's got five, what's it got? five national titles in Alabama. He also like gray shirts kids at the yeah. last minute, right? No, yeah, he's, he's he, ruthless a little bit, I think is a good way to describe him with some of the things that he does. I, I think probably not. I think more often than not, running your program that way is not going to end well. It just happens to work really well for him. So I think if if too loyal to players and coaches is a criticism of River Meyer in, in some respects, I think that's something you live with because the alternative could be not great. I think we should not ignore how the line is moving and moving and moving and what Ohio State fans deem acceptable way to run their program. Because I don't want to just pretend like this entire fan base did not hate Urban Meyer when he was at Florida for getting Sharif Floyd and all the things that went down on the SEC with the oversigning. And all. There was a website called oversigning.com that was like bookmarked on every Ohio State fan's web browser. And I think now some of the comments that I read on message boards and on Twitter and stuff of like, well, more room, more room, more room for transfers and certain things. I think that the level of expectation and the things that are happening at Ohio State has shifted. Whereas if these things were happening when Trussell was the head coach seven or eight years ago, it might not have been accepted as easily as it is now. And I think if you told the average Ohio State fan, we're going to do every single thing that Alabama does at Ohio State, and we're going to have the same result, I think most of them would take it, if not all of them. Man, that is a really good answer. Look into your souls, Ohio State fans. What do you want? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be Nick Saban? You can just be Dabo. Dabo does it too. And the other thing when we talk about Ohio State and, and Alabama, because I think they're one, at, they're one and, and two. Can Clemson go to the playoff without Deshaun Watson? Now, that is what I think Ohio State and Alabama have done best, and part of the reason why is because of the recruiting tactics that also involve things like oversigning and certain stuff like that. Um, I had written before the playoffs that if Ohio State won the national title and beat Bama to do it, <clears throat> that Ohio State maybe would pass Alabama as the best program in college football. I think what has happened is Ohio State's third right now. I would argue that they're tied for second. Ari? I would argue, I tweeted before the game that they would be tied if Clemson won. I think the dramatic way that Clemson, the thing that I want to see, and part of the point I wanted to make, was I want to see Clemson do what Ohio State did where 
they replace their entire team, which they probably will for the most part after what they just did, and then get back to the playoff again. I think a championship is good. It's great. It's the one thing that your basically elite programs are based off of. But I think the second part about being elite is being elite no matter what. And Ohio State made the playoff after losing half of their team from a team that won a championship and had a pretty good season the following year. I want to see Clemson sustain success over the long term because Ohio State's been in the playoff discussion since the beginning, and they will continue to do that based on recruiting. I don't know if Clemson's at that level from a talent standpoint yet, but they're working towards it. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I will say the one thing. I mean, Clemson beat Ohio State three years ago. And that was a great Clemson team. That had like they had a quarterback that everybody knew in Taj Boyd. They had an unbelievable receiver in Sammy Watkins. They had a first round defensive end in Vic Beasley, um, and they were really so maybe good. They've already gotten to that point. I, I mean, I think that's. I th- I feel like this is um, like if we want to compare, if you want to do apples to apples and do like the Urban Meyer era, what's happened in these five years and what Clemson's done in that same time period. You know, like it's it's right there, and I think yeah, maybe um, better because they did go to the championship game last year too. Right. So, you know, Ohio State has Ohio State's made the championship game once under Urban Meyer, and they won it. And Clemson just made the last two, and the and team they that they're going it. completely head to head against in this discussion beat them two out of the two times they face each other correct and the other thing is i mean i I agree with you they're gonna have to show it and i think it's a very good point about sort of you lose everybody and you you lose a defining player in deshaun watson but they have a quarterback pipeline they have a five i think they have multiple five stars five stars committed in 2017 and 2018 they look like clones of each other so they're yeah (laughs) they do um and they're like california they're like white kids with long hair yeah look like ronnie bass yeah i mean it's crazy um, and you win championship with Bass, don't you? Yeah. So um, it's interesting um, <laughs> to see where Clemson goes from here. I am not expecting Clemson to go anywhere. And also, by the way, and I've said this before, for any of the – I was going to say a swear word. <laughs> if you're the kind of person who has gone through life saying, oh, Clemson's going to Clemson again and Sparty being Sparty, like sh- you're, you've been shut down. Clemsoning is beating Ohio State by 31 now. I was so, really dreading that watching the game when they were going in for the game when he touched down. I was like, oh man, they're going to screw it up and Clemsoning is going to happen again. And I was like, I was dreading that. It's so stupid. So like Michigan. That wouldn't we, have been Clemsoning. That right, just would have been falling short of an amazing comeback. Right. But, but we had, I mean, we had, I remember had, we had this discussion in a podcast probably last year about Sparty being Sparty and Clemsoning Clemsoning. And it's so stupid. I think when we were talking about elite programs or something. Anyway. We've said the elite three times. I think we owe PJ Fleck $15. Um, all right, last question. This is my question for our AP voter, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, Ari has a special dandy little thing he's got coming for you people that he's getting ready to uh, go do and do some reporting on. You need to be on our website over the next week because we're going to be bringing you some stuff that you're not going to get anywhere else, which is what normally happens anyway, but this is really going to be happening. <laughs> Bill Landis, Ohio State sixth in the final AP poll behind number five, Oklahoma. I went on a Twitter rant Tuesday morning and said the dumbest people in America were AP college football voters. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, no, I, I didn't I didn't quite understand that. And the thing I will say about the AP poll, it gets a little tricky. And I, I guess speaking from personal experience, this is my first year voting. Um, 
I think you try to honor head-to-head -head as much as you possibly can, and but it gets a little tricky when you talk about, for example, Ohio State, Penn State, and Michigan. It's like, well, Penn State beat Ohio State, Ohio State beat Michigan, Michigan beat Penn State. Like, who do you rank ahead when you consider the fact that Penn State won the Big Ten? So, like, that's where there's some gray area. There's no gray area with Oklahoma and Ohio State. They played. They didn't have any other common opponents. Ohio State beat them and beat them soundly and on the road. And they finished with the same number of losses. They finished with the same number of losses. If the argument is Oklahoma finished on a 10-game winning streak, awesome. They beat two good, two borderline good teams in that 10-game winning streak, Oklahoma State and Auburn. The Big 12 stunk this year. Um, I think Oklahoma's fine. Ranking Oklahoma ahead of Ohio State, given all of Ohio State's flaws, uh, was crazy. I didn't understand that at all. Like it's, it's like people don't think that Oklahoma would have gotten his butt kicked by Clemson or that Ohio State couldn't have beaten frickin' Auburn yeah. in a meaningless Sugar Bowl. Are you kidding me? It is so stupid. And this is what I get wound up about. I've said for years, Bill said, the AP poll is meaningless. It doesn't matter. Everybody gets wound up during the year, and it's silly. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters during the year are the college football playoff rankings. But guess what? The final AP poll matters because 50 years from now, when some dude or dudette is paging through the Ohio State history books to look up something, they're sixth. There's no there's no playoff rankings after the bowls. The coaches' poll is a biased wad of crap. <laughs> this is it. Six, is it 61 or 62? 61. 61 people have been tasked with ranking these teams for history. It is a responsibility. And the people who did it this year either didn't care enough or were too stupid to get it right. And stupidity angers me. And this is just stupid. Like Bill said, you can dance around Penn State, Michigan, all this. There's no argument here. When you get to the playoff, you're going to play a good team. When you don't make the playoff, you might play a mediocre team in a bowl. And so this is so stupid because it's just one of those things. People like to do things like how many times in his career did an Urban Meyer team finish in the top five or stuff like Not this year. They finished sixth behind a team they beat on the road. So AP voters, I have thought you are stupid for a decade, and I would like to thank you for confirming once and for all how exactly stupid and worthless your poll is, except it's the only thing we have to go by for history, so we're stuck with your horrible, lousy, incompetent ranking. Out. God, it makes me mad. That's unbelievable, <laughs> and I, I know that that's a good way to end the podcast, but I would be remiss if we did not include one final question. I know we're going a little bit long here, but from our guy who said that we provided the Ohio State coverage that has been absent from his life his entire life. Which I thought was the greatest thing anybody's ever said to me. Yeah, it was an awesome. So one more question. His name is Jeff Whitten. He sent this in an email, so there's no Twitter. Because looking back at the last two recruiting classes, can you talk about some of the guys we have not seen much of yet this year and if there is a key factor next year with any of them? Keandre Jones, Jonathan Cooper, Jay Sean Cornell, Eric Glover-Williams, and Kier Hawkins, who we did talk about uh, Glover-Williams a little bit, but is there anybody on that list that you think might be a stud coming up? It's tough because they're all kind of buried on the depth chart. Um, depending on how deep the rotation gets at defensive end, I think Jonathan Cooper is one of those names you mentioned, right? Yeah, and I saw him before the game at the Fiesta Bowl. Monster. And he was warming up, and the guy is a monster yeah. physically. I think he might – if, if there's anyone from that group who I think might 
make a little bit of a jump next year, Tim. The other guys, I think they're in a tough spot just with the depth chart. I mean, I think Keandre Jones is high on a lot of people's lists, but they have two starting linebackers coming back who aren't going anywhere, and Dante Booker, who was who won a starting job this year and then got hurt, that we're assuming is going to start. But then all those they could be replacing all three linebackers for the two thousand. What year is it? It's 2017 now. For the yeah. 2018 season, and then that's when you're going to see Keandre Jones and maybe Justin Hilliard or Nick Connor or some of these other dudes. They're going to need that linebacker depth. So I think Keandre Jones is one of those guys might end up being a, a two-year starter at Ohio State, but I don't think it's coming to this year. I think um, Jay Sean Cornell is an interesting name, and I think he's been hindered by injuries a little bit. But we've talked before about the interior defensive line was, was pretty good, okay, not excellent. And there seems to be an opening there for someone to step up and like become the guy. If Jay Sean Cornell is healthy and is as talented as he was built to be, maybe he could do that. It's kind of a long way to get there, but maybe it's possible. I don't know. All right, Ari, you good to go? I am. So thanks, guys. <laughs> Have fun on your trip. Should, should, are we teasing the trip for the loyal podcast listeners, or is it are we keeping you know, it we a can secret? Tease the trip. Tease the trip. All right. Ari is going to the newest Ohio State recruiting pipeline, Bishop Gorman in Vegas, where Tate Martell came from, where Tajon Lindsay came from, where Haskell Garrett came from, and where they're after more guys, right, for the future? Could be their quarterback in the future, Bill. Who's that? With that Dorian. Oh, Robinson. yeah. That's right. He was up here camping. I forgot about he him. He camped here, and he came with Tate, and he is a career quarterback backup at Gorman, which is basically like being the starter everywhere else. And he's like a six foot five tarantula. So, um, and then of course the linebacker, I cannot pronounce his name and I'm going to try to figure it out tomorrow. And I might try to get him to say his name in a video so we can have like a phonetic video of how to say it. Oh, it's like Gaiatote. The last name is Gaiatote, I'm pretty sure. Gaiatote. Who's like Ryan Shazier, but better. Because yeah. everybody's better when they're playing right now instead of in the past. <laughs> so if you ever wondered how Ohio State wound up establishing a pipeline at this school in Las Vegas, Ari's going to answer that question. So those are going to go up. Those stories will start rolling out next week. Is that correct, Ari? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Next week, mid next week, yep. All right, so uh, make sure you keep looking for that. Make sure you keep looking for all our coverage at cleveland.com slash OSU. You can subscribe to our podcast. It's called Buckeye Talk. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can uh, subscribe on Stitch Tickler. <laughs> What's it called? Stitcher. Someday you're going to say the wrong word when you make that Stitcher. Right <laughs> Stitcher. And SoundCloud. SoundCloud. Find it, find it, find it. We post the audio when we every time we do a podcast. But just subscribe. It's so much easier. It's like having Bill Landis in your pocket. And that's what everybody wants. Um, <laughs> that's why I signed up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. Thank you for being uh, the people who give us jobs. So for Bill Landis, for Ari Wasserman out in the desert, I'm Doug Maurice, And that was Buckeye Talk.